Well, it's a great privilege to be here and uh, lovely to... I think it's been about 20 years since I last preached at Gladesville, so I must have done something wrong. Uh, but uh, thanks for the mercy and uh, got great privilege to be back. Only joking. Dr. Victor Chang uh, was a great heart surgeon uh, many years ago who was based at St. Vincent's Hospital. He was on the cutting edge of heart and lung transplants at the time. Uh, he gave people an extra 20 years of life because of his work. Things were said of him after he died that would never be said of me. He was an impressive man. But tragically, one Thursday morning, uh, on his way to work, he was pulled over by some gunmen who, on a Mossman corner there on that Thursday morning, forced him to do something that he, he resisted until, tragically, they shot him dead. And when I think about that Thursday morning on that Mossman corner, there stood the very best and the very worst this country could produce. You know, hands of Dr. Victor Chang that were devoted to saving lives. The hands of those who killed him devoted to taking lives, the very best and the very worst. Well, the story Jesus tells us that was just read out beautifully just then is really the story where Jesus places together the very best and the very worst his nation could provide. And he places them in the presence of God in a temple for one reason. And here's the reason. And it's told in the opening section of the story from Luke. Luke chapter 8, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So it's a critique on anyone who, puts their, who wants to put their trust in their own goodness as a basis of finding acceptance before God. And as a result of that, we'll look down on others. What we've got here is not so much two people named in person, but two categories, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Let's give you a bit of a profile on either of them, on both of them. The Pharisees function as about a 1% of the Jewish population. They were hardcore. I mean, there were no half measures with these guys. They were the spiritual giants of the first century world. They, for example, fasted two days per week. Now, we're not talking about your 5-2 diet where for two days a week you drop down to 600 calories a day. Oh, no. These guys didn't eat anything all day, twice a week, Week in, week out. And in anyone's language, especially mine, that's impressive. And all the more impressive given that the Bible only ever required a Jew to, to not eat one day a year. Well, that's the nature of religion, isn't it? It always loves to add to and think of itself more holy than God. They also gave 10% of their income to a cause greater than themselves out of zeal for God. So if anyone had uh, thoughts and grounds for thinking they were good enough for God, it was these guys. They had a high standard. They had a high success rate. Now, the tax collector, he's on the world, the other end of the moral spectrum. Uh, these guys were contracted by the Romans who had invaded Israel to tax their own people. Uh, so they were a nasty piece of work. They, firstly, they betrayed their own people by siding with the enemy, and then they exploited their own people by overtaxing them. They bled decent people of a decent living. I mean, literally, kids went to bed hungry because of these guys. So knowing that, who would you think at face value Jesus will back into heaven? Let's see. The Pharisee comes before God uh, thankfully, prayerfully, confidently, with a clear conscience. Um, he's done everything that he can see that he should have done. Uh, let me read to you from verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers and adulterers, 
Or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. So this guy not only knows the Ten Commandments, he actually does them. Um, or he thinks he does them anyway. He, he, he's paid his taxes. He's not slept with another man's wife. Um, but most of all, he's grateful that he isn't turned out by the grace of God like that treacherous tax collector who's also in the temple next to him. He doesn't sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that could save a wretch like me. Oh, no. He sings, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that could ever save a wretch like him. Because in his mind, he doesn't see himself as a wretch worthy to be, uh, needing to be forgiven. The Pharisee truly understands himself to be a good person who has done lots of good and is affirmed in his community for being someone who does good. And that's why you can see he's relying on his own performance to find acceptability before God. And you, you get the feeling as if God is the one who owes him. What the Pharisee doesn't do is this. He doesn't hope to be put right with God because there's nothing to be put right about. There's not a hint of confession on his lips. Now, this is the religious heart that tries to earn approval with God by our own virtues. And whenever you do that, you'll either, it always results in two options. You either go down the proud line or you go down the petrified line. Proud because I think I'm good enough and I don't think you are because you don't perform as well as I do. And that's the point of the Pharisee here. Or you're petrified. I'm not good enough and I never will be and I'll never be able to solve this problem. Now the tax collector, he's very much aware of his failure before God. Notice the body language as well as the words in verse 11. But the tax collector stood at a distance. You see that? He's very much aware he's in the presence of a holy God. He would not even look up into heaven. Okay, he's, he's carrying a quota of guilt and shame. He beats his breast. There's deep remorse here for what he's done. And then finally the confession. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now you may think the guy's got low self-esteem. He's an introvert. He's withdrawn. Um, but that, let me tell you, is an honest assessment of his humanity. He knows he comes before a perfect God as a sinner. There's no offer, you notice, to try to sort of lift my game, um, you know, hoping that's against hope, that if I, maybe if I make a set of resolutions, if I, I try to lift up myself from my bootstraps, there's no hope placed in whatsoever in any good things he might have done. I'm sure he was a half-decent husband and a decent father to, and good friend to his friends. Because in the end, these are but crumbs before a holy God. Now, all you hear from his lips are those six words, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or literally, have mercy on me, the sinner. So what is it that makes these two men approach God on such different bases? Let me suggest two reasons. Number one, the thing about being good, I mean really good, is that it has its own temptation built within it. It's very easy to be deceived by our own virtues. You see, he was, he, he was a man who did good, who then concluded he was a good person with the result that he was good enough for God. See that? That's a fatal logic. That's a logic that will send you to hell every time. I'm, I do good, therefore I'm a good person with the conclusion that I'm good enough for God. And so the warning's clear that 
the better you are as a human being, the nicer, kinder, more sensitive, the more spiritual, the more causes you advocate for on behalf of others, which are all excellent things. The more you're like that, the more you run the risk of thinking, these are the things that will qualify me for, for uh, being accepted by God on the last day. And I've got to be very clear with you, they don't. The tax collector, well, he's got no goodness to appeal to. Um, and that's why he's not pretending. He knows he's a mongrel and so does everyone else. Friends, can I be very clear at this point? It, it, it's one of the shocking statements that people always get wrong when they read the Bible. Heaven is not for good people. They don't exist. In the same chapter as in Luke 18, Jesus will say to another man, no one is good except God alone. No, heaven is not for good people. It's for forgiven people. That's why that's such a relief. That's why it's good news. And the Pharisee, he didn't come looking for forgiveness. What did he come looking for? He came to present his spiritual CV, hoping to get a pat on the back and a reward. Well, that's the first reason. The second reason why these two men approach God differently is, is because this Pharisee does what I've done and what we're all tempted to do. We make human beings our yardstick. We measure ourselves not in relation to God, but in relation to other humans. He measured his performance against the tax collector instead of measuring his performance in terms of God. And of course he was better than the tax collector by miles or kilometers, if I could get into the modern world. People are all over the world pinning their hopes on this simple truth that if I'm as good as average, better than some, I'm going to be okay, maybe. But, you know, the thing about comparison, it's so deceptive. I mean, you may know the statistic, 80% of Australian men think they're above average in sport. It doesn't work. Now, you may not be able to tell, those in the building can tell, but you may not be able to tell on camera that I, I'm not that tall. <laughs> I'm 165 centimetres on a good day. Uh, old, old measurement's five foot six. And so, but, but when I was 12, I thought I was tall. Why? Because in my point, my, my you know, frame of reference, my, my parents, well, they were both you know, five foot, 152 centimetres. My, my, my sisters, they were even shorter. And so by the time I was 12, I was Goliath in the family. And I'm Maltese, right? So we're not a short race. We're like the Filipinos. We just, we, we just don't climb the heights all that high. And so I just walked around with this sense that I was this tall dude until about 13. And then all my Aussie mates, you know, just shot up, you know, 5, 10, 15 centimetres. And all of a sudden, I'm looking up to them. They're looking down to me. I'm on the receiving end of short jokes. And there was a song at the time that really didn't help. It was called Short People. I don't know if you know it. Short people got no reason to live. They got little hands and little feet. Anyway, it was written by a short person, but it really came at a bad time for me. You see, your point of measure, your point of reference will determine how you see yourself. So what if you're good as average, better than some? So what, technically, you could be, hypothetically, the best human being that has ever walked the face of the earth minus Jesus. You could be. This, that definition could be yours. But all you have to do is line up your life against God's perfect standard and your only comeback is to, is to cringe. See, what does the tax collector do? He doesn't measure himself against the Pharisee. He measures himself against God. And once you do that, your only comeback is what? Have mercy on me, a sinner. And you notice that's why it's such a clean confession. You know, it's not, um, you know, I'm sorry, Lord, but here are my good points or I'm sorry, but here are the three World Vision kids I support that are strategically located on my fridge door so everyone can see. Um, no, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is so simple, 
so profound. See, the problem of the human heart is it constantly overestimates our human nature and then resorts to simplistic solutions. But Jesus tells us so clearly that we are far worse than we can ever imagine and he is far more merciful than we can ever hope. When the tax collector is asking for mercy, that's a technical word in the Bible. And he's, he's essentially saying this, God, I recognize, given the way I've lived my life and treated you and others, that I deserve your anger. I deserve to go to hell. But what I'm asking for is that you could turn aside your anger and that I could be forgiven. And Jesus promises to turn aside his anger away from us. How? Because the one who told the story is on his way to the cross. And there at the cross, Jesus on the cross, almost functioning like a lightning rod, will deflect God's judgment away from us and onto himself so that we can be forgiven. For there at the cross, Jesus will pay the penalty that our sins deserve. I think our problem is we don't quite get the seriousness of the situation. Hence, we keep reverting to superficial solutions. Let me use this example to make the point. Imagine if God were to say to you, imagine if God were to measure your rebellion in terms of financial categories. I think we all kind of get money, right? And imagine if God were to say to you that the debt you have incurred towards me by virtue of how you've treated me is of the order of a $200,000 debt. Wow, that's significant. Now, I hear that and I think to myself, wow, that's a big debt. But in the back of my mind, I think, I, I think I can pay that off. You know, pick up an extra job, sell the house, sell the car, sell the kids. No, no, don't sell the kids. But, you know, there's a sense where it, I can approach that problem with optimism and I think I can solve it. Um, but if God were to say to you, oh, no, no, no. If Jesus were to say, no, no, the, the debt you have incurred towards me, given how you've treated me and others, is more of the order of $900 billion. Hmm. Well, what you come back on that? You're not going to offer to pay three cents in the dollar. You're thinking, oh my goodness, I've got no hope. I've got to cry out for mercy. See, the tax collector does what God expects every human being to do, to give up. Not give up doing good, give up trusting in the good that we do. Give up and ever thinking that, that my virtues and whatever good I do in this world will not, cannot ever justify me before God. That they will never qualify me for heaven. That was never their purpose. Uh, don't stop doing good, just stop relying on the good that you do and start relying on the mercy of God. That's what the parable's trying to point to. Now, the tax collector sees things as God sees them. But Jesus now is going to tell us how he sees things. And as the judge of all the earth, he's issuing a verdict that he will one day issue on the last day. And here it is in verse 14. And it's a bit of a surprise. I tell you that this man, that would be the treacherous tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What? Did I hear that? Jesus is declaring that horrible tax collector, yep, he's brokenhearted and humbled himself, yep, in, while the Pharisee, with all that he's done good, is out? I mean, 
I think we're kind of prejudiced because we've already had a prejudice towards Pharisees. If you know the Bible in any way, you put them in the bad box straight away. But that's not how they were viewed in the first century. They were the ones voted most likely to be sainted. They, they, were, the, they were the ones you aspired to be like. That's like, I'll give you a modern version of how offensive this is. And I hope it is offensive. Imagine a member of a Ku Klux Klan and a civil rights activist both going to a church this Sunday in Alabama. And the preacher is preaching on the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the member of the Ku Klux Klan is convicted of his sin and the profound uh, impact he's had on God and cries out for mercy, repents and turns away from his sins, including racism, and puts his trust in Jesus Christ and is told that when he walks out of that building, he is right with God, in spite of everything he has done. While the civil rights activist in that particular context decides to himself, I've tried to live a good life. There's nothing. I don't need the mercy of God. I think in my advocacy for others, I've got right standing with God and I don't need to actually ask for mercy. And we're told the one who you thought was in is out and the one you thought is out is in. That's the offensive nature of Jesus' conclusion. So I hope you're offended because that was the point of the story. See, the Pharisee wanted from God what he thought he deserved. And you know what? He got it. Rejection. The tax collector asked from God what he knew he didn't deserve. And he got it. Mercy. So the question for you today is very simple. What do you want from God? Because I guarantee it, he's going to give it to you. The question is, if you want what you think you deserve, are you sure you want it? Because it's going to be rejection. I remember uh, watching a former, former, former minister of immigration talking to a Cambodian refugee in a detention centre. And the minister said to him, he said, what, what do you want from me? And the, and the Cambodian refugee dropped his head and whispered, Mercy. Now, I don't know whether the government gave him mercy and allowed him to stay in Australia, but I know God is dying to offer you mercy. No, no. God's son died to offer you mercy. And that mercy was displayed at the cross where Jesus, who lived the life you and I should have lived, he truly went around doing good and was good and is good. So that by the time he got to climb on the cross, he could die on the cross. He could die for your sins instead of his own. For there at the cross... You know, he paid the debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we simply couldn't pay. And that debt is paid. And that's why mercy is able to be offered. So let me ask you today. Let me, if you don't mind me saying, let me plead with you. Ask God for mercy if you've never done it. Turn from your sins and turn to Christ. Enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ on his terms. And know that that mercy offers you a full pardon and forgiveness. I remember preaching this very same sermon years ago. And after the sermon, a man came up to me and said, Ray, I was there. I said, what do you mean? Where were you? I was there on that footpath on Thursday morning on that Mossman corner. And I saw Dr. Victor Chan get shot. I said, you're kidding. He said, yeah. He said, and then the man pointed the gun at me and said, if you ID me, I'm going, to shoot, I'm going to come after you and kill you. And he said, I was so terrified. He was a British man who was working in Australia, living at Mossman. And he was too afraid to ever go back home to the place he was renting. 
And so he stayed with another family in Mossman who were Christians. And they took him in and they loved him and they took him along to church. And he, not, he was more than happy to do that. And it was there in the context of hearing the Bible being opened up and being introduced to Jesus that he came to a point for himself that he too discovered that he was a man who needed mercy. That he, he too, like the man who shot Dr. Victor Chang, that he too, like the rest of us, deserved hell. But that he too was prepared to own his sins, confess them, and put his trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what he did. So today, friends, let me ask you, is it not time for you to cry out for mercy and to decide to put your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he paid a debt you could never pay, and that debt has been paid in full. You know, tomorrow's promised to no one. Today, well, there'll never be a better day than today to say yes, to be able to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer with me. If you think you're at a point where you recognise that this is true and this is true for me, then why don't you give expression to that desire in your heart, that desire to want to reach out and take hold of the mercy of Jesus. And echo the words I'm about to pray in your own heart to God. Let's pray. Dear God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know that what I deserve is your rejection, but what I'm asking for is your beautiful mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that though that through your death on the cross, you paid the debt I could never pay. Thank you that I am now fully forgiven. I now put my trust in you. I now seek to put you first in my life. Help me to live for you and to never look down on others. In Jesus' powerful name. Friends, if you prayed that prayer sincerely, know that the heavens are rejoicing and so are we. Welcome to the family. And uh, can I say that great sinners who cry out for mercy make great singers. So let's sing to our awesome God.